sorry, I just tried to read and talk at the same time and it went completely wrong. Hello everyone and welcome to the very 54th episode of the Octothought podcast which is coming to you on the 31st of March 2022. I'm John Coxon. I'm Alison Scott. And I'm Liz Batty. We have a bumper roster of letters of comment this week on account of how I had COVID last week and so we only gave you a measly 14 minutes of entertainment. And thank you to everyone who asked if John was better. John, are you better? Um, I appear to be. You don't sound like you've gargled a load of gravel. I um, I have a headache and a sore throat, but I think the headache and sore throat are mostly because of the dust this time and not because of the COVID, because I think getting reinfected this quickly would be uh, spectacularly unlikely. Yeah, I had a headache and a dribbly nose, and I did an LFT and it was negative, and I said a headache and dribbly nose, and I did an LFT and it was negative, and then I went... Of course, and took my antihistamines, so... Yeah, that's the sort of thing. There's a lot of dust in my house now, listeners. This is the experience I have this week, and I will probably take an LFT in the middle of recording this podcast. But they've all been negative, so I'm pretty sure I don't have COVID. You're going to take one mid-podcast? If it's positive, are you going to stop? Are you doing an an actual play of an LFT? (laughs) Is this like a experiment to see whether lfts are in fact eligible for the best interactive experience hugo <laughs> okay so I, I... that bong you just heard was <laughs> alison putting her foot down listeners it wasn't but i'll remember this. i actually do lateral flow tests in the middle of octothorpe episodes quite often because it's finding a time when i can guarantee that i haven't eaten or dr- haven't drunk any coffee in the last half hour um, so, because there is no coffee, so in half an hour's time, I will not have had any coffee for half an hour and and ten. Brilliant. That is a good plan, actually. And we also got a lot of comments on Sue Mason's fantastic artwork. Thank you very much to Sue. Yeah, we have more art- fantastic artwork from guest artists in the pipeline. We are very pleased about that. Duncan McGregor is very worried what I'm going to do with the picture of him. And um, hopefully you'll see that in this episode's artwork as long as I get my finger out. Excellent. Um, So we had a letter of comment from one Christopher J. Garcia, and he notes that he can, if pressed, equate everything to genre awards, especially food. And I'd like you to express Korean barbecue in the context of genre awards, please, Chris. He is in favour of bids having a big website that contains everything you could possibly want to know about the bid, but especially costs. And my comment on that would be, as somebody who's currently working on a bid, sometimes the information that you would love to put on the website isn't entirely there yet when you're working on a bid, and you probably don't want people to know that. So um, so the bids, t- the websites tend to be a collection of the stuff that we know and can talk about and are not still arguing about. And I think that's fine, too. So it's, you're saying it's better for your website to be missing. Basically, it's better for your website to be extremely minimalist, because otherwise what's not on your website might give away where your committee is still arguing. I don't think so, because I don't think people spot it that well. But I think it is better to be um, have limited information on the website than have the website be wrong. Yes, I would agree with that. I think that's fair. But but I think sometimes when websites don't have everything you might possibly want, that's why. It's because behind the scenes, everything you might possibly want is not yet settled. 
Yeah, I didn't say that bid sessions, you know, in a bid session, what I want to hear is information which is correct from the bids. I feel that one should go without saying. You'd be amazed, though. I think people who have not run bids may not know how much is left, not till the last minute, but like there's a lot that you don't know until you know. And like you have to bear in mind that the cost curve for a convention, your actual budget and your projected budget can be massively divergent numbers and you don't really understand sometimes you don't understand how much money you've got to play with until three weeks before the con and so you do there are certain things you're like we really want to be able to do this and if we get enough members we'll definitely be able to do it uh but we haven't got enough members yet so we can't announce it yet and then what sometimes happens which is a lovely problem to have is that you get way way more members than you're expecting and then suddenly you've got to work out things to spend money on right at the last minute where you hadn't planned to at all uh and so like i do i i appreciate chris's point but i also appreciate allison's point that like these things are highly variable even like right up to the convention it can be very difficult to know what's actually going to happen and the cost curve for east cons in particular is wildly out of whack at the moment nobody really knows what it is anymore it used to be pretty reliable and now it's not at all is that to do with covid or was that happening before covid alice i think it is a combination of covid and the fact that london easter cons are not like non-london easter cons is the two things that primarily drive that so essentially in terms of the will you get a massive bunch of members in the last month the answer seems to be well you either will or you won't which is not great but it is factually correct so i'm i'm for it (laughs) and because it is factually correct it can go on the website (laughs) a website is a lasting thing that can people can point to and pillory you if you fail to live up to the promises on it so i think in that case we could describe a website as an immutable artifact we could certainly describe it as the opposite of a political manifesto oh satire was that getting a bit political we can segue from that but not yet Chris also says that because I am a novel, he is going to guess who I am written by. And his guess is Stephen Baxter, which is awkward because Hispania hates novels written by Stephen Baxter. So I really hope I'm not uh, because that would be interesting for our marriage. So try again, Chris, please. Other listeners may also guess. Someone called, and let me make sure I'm pronouncing their name right, uh, Liz Batty sent us a lock on our last episode uh, with a picture of a cat Uh, so if you'd like to see an adorable cat uh, please go and look at the comments on the facebook post for that episode is ginger is lovely did you have a nice holiday liz i did it was also a very noisy cat but would not come any closer than it is depicted in the photograph and in our last episode johnny badly heard john talking about netrunner in his pick and is going to send John all his old Netrunner stuff. So I'd just like to let people know that I collect vintage emeralds. And if anyone would like to send me some, they'd be very, I'd be very grateful for those. Um, big ones better. Thank you. So listeners, Alison has told that joke four times and it was only in that most recent telling that I actually got it. So, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> repetition is the secret to comedy. Really? Yeah, well, I just... Yeah, no, yeah, I'm quite dense sometimes. Um, It's why I like rereading The Hitchhiker's Guide. There are always jokes in there that I didn't get on the first 46 read-throughs. Well, I mean, you do want to keep telling jokes until they land. I mean, I haven't, like, checked if Liz got it yet, but some people got it on the Facebook group, so it can't be impossible. We also had 
a message from Johnny about discos in COVID times and whether or not we thought there'd be discos at conventions during COVID and whether or not it would be fun to dance in a face mask. Having caught trains in a face mask and gotten unpleasantly sweaty, I can't imagine dancing in a face mask is going to be anything like fun. Uh, But I might be wrong. I don't know how sweaty dancers like to get. I'm not judging. But I don't know. I don't know what the plans for the disco are at EastCon. EastCon committee, if you're listening, write in. I do Zumbra in a face mask. It's all right. Interesting. So maybe the secret is that um, it's just fine, Johnny, and we just all need to embrace the sweat. I mean, I'm I'm going to be, if I'm dancing for an hour, then like I'm going to be sweaty anyway. And so the mask doesn't seem to significantly add to that. I would say more impressive is that like the instructor, who is more high energy than I am and also shouting, is wearing a mask throughout, which I think is pretty impressive. We may have digressed a bit far, but yeah, I mean, I still wear a mask to do exercise and it's okay. But but a disco at a convention isn't exactly doing exercise, is it? It depends how you dance. It depends how much you're going at it. I mean, <laughs> yeah, can be. Yeah, I remember my sweatiest moment at Dublin 2019. It wasn't my sweat. I stood outside the Glasgow 2024 Cayley briefly and waited as the miasma floated over me from that room. So they were having a lot of fun and they were getting very sweaty pre-COVID. A Kaylee is a very good way of getting very sweaty. Yeah. Listener Laurie from the podcast Hugo Girl mentioned that she has now read Six Weeks by Mer Lafferty and really liked it and is going to try to convince her co-hosts to add it to the schedule eventually. So I look forward to that happening because that sounds ace. And Laurie also told us that, like me, she listens to her own podcast from time to time. So if you are if you do a podcast and you'd like to listen back to it, let us know. Because um, I kind of think it's a good sign, but it might be that we're just very self-indulgent or I'm just very self-indulgent. <laughs> um, why not both? We have live follow-up from inside my house, which is that my wife says there was a dance at Clockwork Alchemy, which is a steampunk convention in the Bay Area where the dancers all wore masks. And uh, I will link to, um, I, well, if, if it's public, I will link to a Facebook post in the show notes, listeners, although that was more couples dancing. My steampunk friends say that the steampunk community has embraced masks in a big way, which shouldn't surprise anyone, really. I saw at Gallifrey 1, several of the cosplays worked masks into the costumes. So if you're doing like an alien cosplay, you had like a mask that was like the alien's face. And some of those were really, really cool. So since we last recorded, there has been some more discussion of the Chengdu World Con. There has been a letter asking the Worldcon community uh, to revoke the site selection of, of Chengdu in uh, 2023 as a reaction to its threats to Taiwan about the Ukraine invasion and also the Uyghur genocide, as, as we've discussed previously on this podcast. And I think it's a very well-meaning effort, but it is more, I think, drawing attention to the Chengdu Worldcon bid than actually having much hope that it will be revoked as a site because there isn't really any mechanism for that to happen. But I think it is very nice to kind of raise awareness of it. And also the letter does lay out in very clear and and concrete terms the reasons why they feel human rights have been violated and the the site selection should be revoked. Uh, So we'll link to that in the show notes. 
Uh, the second issue that's also come up is that uh, their guest of honor, uh, Sergei Lukyanenko, um, has previously uh, made extremely pro-Russian and anti-Ukraine posts on his live journal. And after the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine, he has also now signed an open letter supporting uh, the invasion of Ukraine and making other favorable uh, comments about it. So there has been a lot of uh, discussion and uh, contact with Chengdu and pressure on them, I think, to try and disinvite him as a guest of honor due to these views. Um as yet, I don't think we've heard anything from Chengdu about Lukyanenko or about the open letter. Um, but what I will say is, you know, these views cannot come, have come as a surprise to them. You know, the immediate context of the invasion of Ukraine, yes, definitely has. But it's not like these views were unknown before they invited him. So this is something that they're going to have to deal with. And it shouldn't have come as a, as a surprise to them. But so far, they've remained silent on it. Yeah, I think this is a very good example of how something that i think we discussed previous to the events of recent times in europe um with a kind of you know this is clearly unacceptable then became a lot less theoretical very quickly and i think this is a lesson for conventions who are like oh but you know x has this objectionable thing but it probably won't end up being a problem and then you look at discon with tony weisskopf and you look at chengdu with um this chap and you think oh no sometimes these things that you think oh we could probably get away with it turns out they become giant pains in the ass very quickly yeah, I was also going to say it's it's one of the things we were discussing about on previous episodes about, you know, rehabilitation and whether someone's acts in the past should always, you know, be automatically uh, how you should take those into account. And in this case, they may have thought, well, he's made comments in the past, but they were quite a long time ago. Maybe he's not said anything since then. You know, maybe they could have discussed it with him, what would happen in the future. But I presume they did not. And now it has become a much more, you know, recent and pressing problem. And props to Marcin, who was the first person around me who said, oh no, this guy is a bad un. You know, Chengdu should not have invited him. It's a terrible idea. And he was right. <laughs> yeah, and it was the, the, the Polish Eastern European fans who were very much aware of this before I was. It was not something I was aware of before they uh, raised it after the site selection vote. There has been, so, so it's worth noting that the guest of honour having objectionable opinions is not the focus of the open letter so the two are happening in close proximity to one another but are not like necessarily related oh there are letters on Lukinenko as well so so people have been writing this sort of thing is why i think that bringing worldcon to countries that have not had worldcon before is great and that is a good thing i think that i did not support china as a worldcon because i had real concerns about various problems with their human rights record and that was before they announced their guest of honor um who kind of didn't make me think that those concerns were things that were being talked about in the Chengdu organization very freely because i think if a convention had had an idea that there was concerns about their human rights record they might have invited a different guest of honor who wouldn't add fuel to that fire i think that what this shows is there probably does need to be some mechanism for a bid to need to fill certain human rights criteria before being allowed to be voted because if we can't deselect a bid it means it's on us to make sure that bids that are selected are appropriate and i think that if the 
end of not doing that is that Worldcon's name gets dragged through the mud by association, that will be a problem for Worldcon going forward. And so I think that this is all a lot of these very academic discussions that we were having around Saudi Arabia when they were bidding are suddenly becoming a lot less academic. And I do think we need to be thinking quite seriously about where we put these lines in the, lines in the sand and whether or not there needs to be some sort of recall mechanism or, or something like that. But I don't know how any of that would work. And it's a very difficult conversation. I think it's very tempting to kind of go, well, what we need is some you know, as part of filing, they need to satisfy these human rights criteria. I think there is a risk that many bids would not be able to do that in many countries, including many countries that we we are generally comfortable with. And it's hard, it would be very hard to draw some lines there. I also think this might all be very a very super a very um theoretical argument because i think the world might be becoming a very complex place in which traveling freely all the way around the world to meet fans from all over the world becomes very very difficult over the next few years that was a bit depressing there we go i mean i would i would say i have seen two concrete suggestions for this um one was using um and it's called the democracy index um which comes from the people who published the economist um which basically splits the you know it gives every country a ranking uh, as to whether uh, they're a full or flawed democracy, a hybrid regime, or an author- authoritarian regime. And the suggestion was that you should only have world cons in regions which are democracies. And there's also a, uh, an index which basically ranks all countries as either free or not free, which is the, I think, the Freedom House, um, Freedom in the World uh, index. So those seem to be two, I mean, they're two concrete suggestions I've seen just because the problem of, how to measure this is very difficult. I mean, I would say that both of them, I'm sure, are coming at this from uh, like a Western perspective. I think, you know, they're done by the people who do The Economist and by a US NGO. So they are coming from a certain perspective. And also there's conflicts between them. Like there are countries which are ranked as democracies, but not free um, for other reasons. And it also includes, you know, countries that might be controversial, but are still you know, democracies under the democracy index. But those are the kind of the the concrete suggestions I have seen. And I suspect we're going to see more discussion um, of this. And I, I guess the other thing to say is that the Chengdu Worldcon has obviously as a guest, uh, Shikshin Lu, which, you know, makes a ton of sense because he's a very, probably the most prominent uh, Chinese language author outside of China. Um, but he also, when asked about his political views on, you know, the, the one-child policy and the re-education camps, um, has been kind of loosely supportive of them. Uh, so I think that's another thing that Chengdu are going to need to be aware of. Uh, for instance, like Netflix are adapting some of his works and I think have had to distance themselves from Lou's views. So when I had Synopticon as one of my picks, one of the things in that is it's clear that loads of stuff is getting edited in translation because it would not the things that Chinese SF authors write often do not land well with Western audiences on all sorts of different fronts. <laughs> and, and that certainly happened with Chicks and Liu. So so that economy that economist post ranks the US as only just above a I might be getting the colour scale slightly wrong, but it doesn't rank it as a full democracy. So I do think that's like a reasonable um, uh, take. I mean, but it does rank China as orange and orange listeners is not just not just good orange, like angry. Actually, no, not even orange, more of a maroon colour. And that 
is bad. I mean, if you've got red well, green colour blindness, the, the world is just shades of grey. Full democracy, but not the second best. rank of full democracy. Yeah, better than Sweden? Spain, which probably fair. Sweden, Finland, Norway, Germany, Iceland, all complete full democracies, and Canada. Israel is a flawed democracy by these standards, but I'm still not sure that an Israel Worldcom would be. You know, if that's our if if that's our ranking, are people going to be happy with that? I think it's probably better to have some fixed system that is outside of Wusfus control, which occasionally yields edge cases I disagree with, than it is to try and do it. Do you see what I mean? Like at least then it's not it's not us being wrong. It's like no, we've we've, we've yoked our star to this carriage, and we're just doing what they say. And sometimes that might be an edge case that's annoying. But like certainly looking at this, it re- it reinforces a lot of my preconceptions about where I would have said the best democracies in the world are. New, Ze- New Zealand, Scandinavia. I mean, you know, it, but it's not... Whatever you pick isn't going to be perfect, but, like, I do think that map... But both of these maps, I think you could make an argument, are, like, relatively sensible um, kind of first stabs. And it's not the be-all and end-all here. It is, you know, a first pass. I mean, you can. we're still going to have votes and people are still going to choose and this is still going to be part of how they choose where they would like to see a Worldcom. But it basically would eliminate some sites from being eligible to bid right from the get-go. I don't see this ratifying in China, guys. Well, I mean, I think the the ratification in China is going to be very interesting um, because of the way Chengdu have structured their memberships. Chengdu have given us the opportunity to send Liz back into the Wusfus Caves. <laughs> to the Bat Constitution, Liz. The Chengdu Worldcom, while remaining silent on other things, have released their membership rates. In fact, they released their membership rates and then they released their membership rates again with some more instructions because it's quite a confusing table. Um, but essentially, the way they're structuring it is that you can purchase a Wusfus membership, um, which is, I think, what we would normally say is kind of a supporting membership. Uh, and this is automatic if you voted in the 2023 site selection, or you can pay $50 for the Wusfus membership. So far, pretty standard. And then you can add an in-person admission, which is free if you voted in the 2023 uh, site selection. Uh, and then there are rates between 30 and $70 for the in-person admission. Or you can purchase online admission, which is between 2 and $10, uh, depending if it's your first walk on or a student or various other things. Um, which is actually a model that I think one of the recent constitutional amendments was moving towards, where you have kind of a Worcester's membership and then you purchase the in-person admission to the Wilcon on top. But the, the difference that... Chengdu are making is that you don't have to purchase that Wispers membership at all. You can just purchase the in-person admission and attend the convention, but you won't have the rights to vote in any site selection or Hugo Awards or presumably attend the business meeting on site. This is quite controversial. Well, in certain circles, it's quite controversial because of the way the Wispers constitution is written. It says you can't do this. It says you cannot sell an attending membership without including Wispers rights. Uh, except for, I think, day memberships and children are excluded. So so you can sell a child's membership or a day membership without including voting rights, but otherwise Wusfus membership is key. And I kind of understand why Chengdu don't want to, but... I mean, I understand why Chengdu don't want to, which is this, that there are other bits of the constitution which say, you know, the supporting membership rate is essentially set in advance by all the bids in agreement with the uh, committee of the Wilcon hosting the site selection 
um, and they all have to kind of agree on the bidding fee. Otherwise, it defaults to basically the median of the, the past three. So you're never going to manage to set a supporting membership rate, which is at the moment less than about $50. But the other bit says that you may not sell a membership, which includes any WISFAS voting rights for less than the cost of supporting membership mentioned in Article 4. So they're not allowed to sell anything that includes WISFAS voting rights for less than $50, which means they can't sell a full attending membership for less than $50. But obviously they would like to do that because they would like to have some very cheap attending membership in order to you know, attract people for whom the, the cost is prohibitive. And of course, we are you know, talking about, um, I think, the first Worldcon being held in a lower middle income country where you know, the idea of paying $120 for a membership is prohibitive to many, many people. Um, and so they've opted to have this in-person admission, which ranges from $30 for a student to $70 for someone who's been to multiple Worldcons which doesn't include the WISFAS voting rights, which gets around that bit, the constitution. But it also falls foul of the bit about not having any, selling any full attending memberships, which don't include WISFAS voting rights. So there's an interesting point here, which is that one of the discussions I saw about this on, a, on some group on Facebook here or there was someone pointing out that at the moment, if you buy a day pass to each day of the Worldcon you don't get WUSFAS voting rights, which is in contravention of the Constitution. So existing Worldcons do already disobey these provisions because it is possible to just keep buying day passes and never become um, a WUSFAS voting member. And I think this is the thing, which is the Constitution is very specific because it says, like, you can't sell a membership that allows attendance and full participation for the entire duration of the convention and does not include WUSFAS voting rights. But if they say that these memberships don't entitle you to go to the WUSFAS business meeting, it doesn't include full attendance of the convention and therefore it doesn't need to include WUSFAS voting rights, which is completely compliant with the constitution and fine. So all you need to do is ban these people from attending the business meeting and jobs are good. I do think that in this case, the other problem is that the Constitution is written in a very US-centric way. Um, not just US-centric, but Anglosphere-centric, I guess. Yeah, which is to assume that basically everyone attending the Worldcon can definitely afford $50 right. And that is not going to be true if the Worldcon does start branching out to countries which do have lower levels of income. And like I'm thinking also of places like India or Brazil or places like that, if they ever decide they want to vote. Uh, and and bid for a world con then this may be a problem and we probably need to have a think about how to make sure that wusfus that the intention that the world con is made up of people who form wusfus matches the reality of what if the world con is held in a country where people don't have a lot of money and it would be useful to offer a membership to local people which includes wusfus but is less than a supporting membership because i think that would be good and you could definitely modify the constitution to allow that so I think, I think I mean, I don't know, it might be that Chengdu haven't spotted this loophole and are just hoping no one notices. But I can see a loophole in these two that means you can do this and it's fine. But yeah, I think there is a wealth privilege thing here which probably needs to be addressed. I, I think you've probably made my point, which is that I'm kind of with Chengdu. I don't know, how do things like the first Worldcon memberships, there's probably still more than the... Um, than the supporting membership, aren't they? That's the issue, is that they want to have a very cheap membership for locals, and I don't blame them, and I think they should be encouraged, and we should find a way to make that happen. And the probable way to do, for this, to do this is for Wusfus just to turn a blind eye, which is the sort of thing that Wusfus loves to do, as you know. What if they don't turn a blind eye? What are they going to do? 
where are the where are the enforcement clauses in the Wusfus Constitution that means anything can be done? There aren't any. So Chengdu can do what they like. They have the right to host the Worldcon. There's no way of taking that away from them, and there's no enforcement mechanisms in the Constitution. So you can do whatever. Like, we have known this, I mean, at least since New Zealand, which I would argue flagrantly violated the Wusfus Constitution, even though Kevin Stanley disagrees with me. But we know that you can do whatever you like already. It's fine. <laughs> but I will also say this is really interesting because one of the things that has been mooted is that the Hugo Awards would look very different this year because there'd be loads of Chinese voters. And if all the Chinese voters have bought super cheap memberships that don't give them Hugo voting rights, it's going to look basically the same as normal, everyone. Uh, so, yay. Is that good for the Hugos? What do we think? Yeah, so I, I would say a couple of things. Yeah, one is that, like, I feel that, yeah, the, essentially the the supporting membership price sort of has locked them in, in a way that probably wasn't intended by the Wisfus Constitution, because it may be that they can run a Worldcon for a lot, a lot cheaper than we can run a Worldcon, you know, in the US or the UK or Ireland. I think they're just their sponsorship and membership and income, it looks very different. I mean, the second argument you could make is that... um it's it's not just holding them in places where the income is lower. It's also, could we possibly want to hold one in the US or the UK where we ran it with a much lower membership fee and, you know, use a different model where we either made it much cheaper or tried to expand to many more people. Like, it also blocks blocks that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, in terms of Hugo's, I'm... I actually think I probably will have more to say on Chinese influence on the Hugo nominations once we have the Hugo nominations in a couple of weeks. That's true, yeah. Hopefully we'll have them by Easter. That's actually a good point. That's a good point because we know that everyone who voted for Chengdu did have a supporting membership to Discon, so we'll be eligible to nominate. Sorry, that was the point I was going to make, which is that 2,000 Chinese voters already have a full attending membership of Chengdu and can vote in the Hugos. And that is plenty. Oh, yes. So if you voted at the Discon 3 site selection for either bid, you are an attending member of Chengdu, which is kind of magic. A um, full Wusfus attending membership mm-hmm. voting rights for literally yes. your support, your site selection fee. So that was a, in my view, quite a good deal. Not that I think the chances of me being at, Cheng, at the Chengdu Worldcon are infinitesimal for multiple reasons, but um, but it's still pretty exciting. And the virtual membership, for people who hadn't noticed, is $2. And I really like that. I think that will increase participation, hugely, not just in China. Yeah, I very much like that what they've been able to do essentially is to reward all the people who reward all the people who supported them by, you know, paying $50 to vote in a process that might have seen them get a supporting membership in Winnipeg, a convention they could never realistically go to. And so they've rewarded them by saying, well, thank you for that. You can now come to the Worldcon and we don't need any extra from you. Um, and then there will also be the, you know, the, there's probably many people in like the US and the UK who voted for Winnipeg and now have full attending membership in a Worldcon in China. They probably won't, won't be able to go to or will choose not to go to. So it does work both ways. Um, but yeah, it means that the the I think the potential for there being, you know, not just the the however many Chinese members who have full attending Wisfus memberships, but however many others they might gain, I would imagine that it will now be a lot lower because why pay, you know, a hundred dollars when you could pay fifty dollars if what you really want to do is go to the convention. And so it is still gonna be a very interesting set of uh nominees and voting for Chengdu. And also the business meeting there is going to be interesting. Um, and that's another thing, because we were talking about um, the other thing is that a lot of things that will come up for ratification in Chengdu may be, again, predominantly 
people who voted in site selection and and us slash other anglo fans um because you know if a lot of the chinese members have not bought was for right um presumably they won't be in the business meeting uh and therefore um yeah the ratification would be interesting chances of the business meeting having sorted out remote participation by next worldcon very low i would say zero yeah because they're going to require that it's a thing they're going to require an amendment to the constitution despite the fact that obviously attending the member you could attend them a convention virtually and therefore you should be able to vote virtually but there we go i would i mean i've argued this before but i think the worst constitution is not um the, 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 it's worded in a way that means that if you have the Worldcon in a place that you're attending it, you should be able to go to the business meeting. And if you're attending the Worldcon virtually, that should mean you get to go to the business meeting virtually. And the fact that you can't, I think, is a flagrant breach of the Constitution. But see also lack of any coherent enforcement mechanism. I agree. Right, so shall we talk about the Fan Awards? Why not? Yes, we should talk about the fan awards. Um, congratulations to everyone who won, and congratulate and thank you very much to the two people who voted for us. One as a Gen Zine and one as a Perzine, both of whose votes were thrown out because um, they, the administrator, as predicted, concluded that we are not a fanzine for the purpose of the fan awards um, because we're not published listeners. For no reason I can tell, because we do keep looking at their definition and going, yeah, yeah. So I think our problem is that we satisfy the definition, but we do not quack like a duck. Yes. When we when I push the publish podcast button in our podcast software, that is not publishing. It is different for some reason that I haven't worked out. And it's definitely not just because they forgot to put the word written in their definition of a fanzine. It, it could just be written. But then I thought, but if I did a fanzine that was all art and contained no words, would that count? Oh. And I, I submit that it would. I mean, I, sub- I submit that's a graphic novel now, Alison. No, but it was good. Um, good people won uh, in various categories. Good things got voted for, which is nice. There were 66 voters this year, and Alison has an observation. Yeah, so quite a lot of these voters think that the Hugos are a bad thing and and terrible and don't reward the right sorts of things. And I'm going to say that if you 66 people get on and vote in the Hugos, those of you who have Wilcon memberships, you probably would get some of the things you like onto the ballot. Because a lot of things that you like just kind of dribble under the ballot in the fan categories. And um, yeah, vote. I mean, it's a bit, you know, nominate. It's a bit late for nominating now, but it's it's not too late to vote. So I find myself, it's interesting because I feel very much that I'm part of the fan awards community. And yet, their their kind of persistent hatred of the Hugos, I don't like. I, I kind of think the Hugos are quite a good thing and um, and not at all bad. And it would be good if people who would like them to go to better things voted for those better things and nominated those better things and talked about those better things. Um, John is a great fan of talking about the things you like loudly and often in the hopes that people will notice. So I'm going to mod- model that behaviour over the next year. I like Alison. She's good. Liz is all right, too. I was going to say. <laughs> Liz has just flipped me the bird, listeners. <laughs> Welcome to the Octothorpe Mutual Appreciation Society. I am Alison and I like Liz and John. So, um, I will, yeah, no, I think, and actually, you've just said something that massively distills a lot of my thoughts about Corflu and the Fan Awards, which are that more and more I find that my perception of that small slice of fandom is that it defines itself 
in terms of negativity towards other slices of fandom that I am also in. And and although I like going to Corflues and I like the fan awards, it is very difficult for me because whenever I interact with them, I am constantly reminded that there are lots of things I like that I am wrong to like, and I find that very difficult. And I think I think that is why I find it um slightly slightly frustrating sometimes. Um but I will say I was not I think I think the fan awards uh went to good winners and um I did vote in the fan awards. I don't know if the things I voted for won awards. Yeah, well most of the things I won award most of the things I voted for did win more so than in in other All right. Tastemaker. No, it's not that. It's the it's just, it's quite a small constituency of things that are very very good are kind of obvious like portable storage i think one best fancy best gen zine and i've just got portable storage in the post and goodness it's amazing it'll be my pick next time unless something very strange happens we can link to the summary of the winners and the full voting breakdown we can non-exclusively reveal what won so the winners were, in order of presentation, the cover for Little Brook 11, which was drawn by Ulrika O'Brien. Uh, Jerry Kaufman was awarded the Best Letter Hack Award. Ulrika O'Brien also took home Best Fan Artist. Mark Plummer, friend of the podcast, took home Best Fan Writer. Best One Shot was Dangerous Visions, edited by Sandra Bond, Rob Jackson and Pat Verzi. Best Perzine was this here. Best Genzine was Possible Storage. And number one fan face was Nick Ferry. And and for those of us who were at the um, awards ceremony, there was a very funny bit where the first three awards announced were either Jerry Kaufman or somebody he published in Littlebrook. So, so that was quite amusing. And in general, because Jerry was the um, um, MC for the awards. Good stuff. But yeah, congratulations to all the winners. Jerry Kaufman won Best Letter Hack, which is great, and, and Mark was second, which is also great. And there are a lot of other letter hacks in there. But the letter hacks are overwhelmingly male. And I don't think that absolutely reflects the people who are writing to fanzines. And I think some women write very good letters to fanzines too. And I would like to see this kind of tacit assumption that all the people who are writing letters to fanzines are boys be addressed in future voting chaps this is a i would like to say that you could nominate alison for best letter hack but my experience is she only locks fanzines she's got articles in if my lulzine is anything to go by she's written us one lock and it was for her own article which i thought was very great have you sent me a lulzine since then you sent me a lulzine but it just reprinted something that you'd already Oh, quite possibly. I just thought it was. I just thought it was bloody great. I just, I really enjoyed it. I did get a. I did get one vote for best letter hack, but that was not, in fact, the letter hacker. Either of the letter hacks I was thinking of, or many of there are many other great female letter hacks who are writing letters to fanzines, and um, and you should look out for instance Claire and Sandra. Okay, so uh, my pick is very science fictional, um, and you'll understand why. It, it kind of it breaks a lot of assumptions we have about, I think, economics, like as a science mostly, um, but also like some other sciences, uh, which is that I, a millennial, have purchased a house, and my house is great, and it is incredibly SFNL. So hurrah! It has lots of science fiction in it, listeners, and I've just finished setting up my board game shelf, and... 
well, no, sorry, I lie. I've just set up my games that are books and folders of cards shelf, which is worryingly full, and I hadn't quite appreciated how much stuff I have until I put it all in one place. It's got my Netrunner cards on it, Johnny, so that's good. I have a pick, which is that I am currently listening to My Real Children by Joe Walton. This is quite an old book. Um, and I'm listening to it as an audio book for reasons that are really complicated, but I'm super enjoying it. It is a book in a category called Sliding Doors after the movie with Gwyneth Paltrow, which had two totally different versions of London, none of which, neither of which bore any resemblance to reality. Oh, no. The idea that you have a character who makes a choice and worlds spin in different directions as a result of that choice Um my Real Children starts off feeling as if it is going to have almost no science fiction elements whatsoever. But as the worldviews digress, it the, the, the worlds are quite different and they are quite different in some quite subtle ways and not necessarily in the ways that you might expect. And um, the obviously our woman has two very different lives in the two different halves of the novel and i am enjoying it very much i've not quite finished it yet though but i'm expecting to carry on enjoying it till the end about 90 percent of the way through at the moment Uh, so that is my pick for this week my real children by joe walton who is a fantastic author just fantastic i have only read among others but i did thoroughly enjoy it um i read it when it was on the hugo ballots and I, and I I did really like it, um, but I have not read any of uh, Joe's other work. So I should rectify that at some point. Probably. I also really, really like Farthing and its sequels, The Small Changes, which is kind of a trilogy about a science fictional version of the Mitfords. I love it. I've had this audiobook for a very long time, but for various reasons had not read it. And I got to the end of my Hugo nomination reading and went, I cannot read any fiction unless I do it by audiobook because I'm so busy at the moment. So so I'm I'm doing it as an audiobook. So normally I um split my reading so the science fiction gets read on ebook or paper and the um kind of self help books are what I normally do as audiobook because they just kind of wash over me. And I don't ever get any better. I find non-fiction. I find non-fiction content is a lot easier to listen to than fiction. It just goes in my head better. That's why I like podcasts. I am going to pick. Oh, I want to read this. The Last Graduate by Naomi Novik, which is a sequel to A Deadly Education, which Alison has previously picked as one of her picks. Uh, yes, so I read the sequel. I mean, I enjoyed A Deadly Education, but I didn't love it. It just, I didn't really get on with the protagonist very much, basically. So A Deadly Education and The Last Graduate are both set in, you know, a magical school called the Scholomance, where there are lots of deadly monsters ready at every turn to try and kill all the young, uh, young magicians in the school. Um, and in the first one... Like most schools. Yeah. And in the first one, we, we see the protagonist go from kind of, you know, the the outcast who is, you know, friends with no one, very much does her own thing to kind of, you know, getting a sort of, you know, group of friends around her and making some connections and working out kind of her place uh, in things. But because of that, in the first one, you see her go from someone who's sort of very prickly and standoffish and, you know, uh, connects with no one. Uh, and I didn't find that particularly fun to read. Whereas in the second one, it's kind of, it picks up immediately. She's basically now got a group of people that she knows and can trust. And it focuses more on 
basically how this magical school and its structure is basically and i'm gonna it's not this is not really a spoiler but you know the, the magical school is essentially terrible and people with the most power and privilege and wealth in a in a magical sense um are going to do okay and those who don't are probably going to get eaten by the end of their first year um and the second book definitely is starting to kind of dismantle this and say actually maybe the system is not that great and actually maybe the whole system of how the magical enclaves work in the world is not that great and you can see like the protagonist finding her way to a way where she can do something to change this with the help of the kind of friends and supporters she now has around her. Now the key thing about this is that the reason she can do this is that she is an immensely immensely powerful wizard um so that is also feels a bit like uh you know a bit of a sort of um what's the word like death ex machina kind of thing that she, she it only works because she's incredibly powerful and has an incredibly powerful ally um so if you can get with that then it's pretty good it's the daughter of an incredibly powerful wizard as well so it's a bit of that going on too yes i mean there's still some things i just liked i think the pacing is still a bit off and it kind of drags a bit in the second half um the first book uh, had some problems with its depictions of like non-white characters. Um, and I think that has improved because it's focusing more on, you know, it's focusing more on different aspects of privilege, I think. So, so I felt this one was, was somewhat better, but the kind of protagonist is still of mixed heritage, which uh, is basically very rarely mentioned. I almost completely forgotten about that. And then it kind of get mentioned about halfway through and I'm like, Oh yes, that was her backstory. Um, and also the ending is like, oh, yes, of course that happened. I knew that was going to happen because that's the way you have to keep the tension going for the third book. But other than that, I did enjoy it and I will read the third one, which I think has the potential to be a very different sort of story in the way that the second book leaves it. And yeah, I enjoyed it. It's also one of those books that you absolutely like devour. Like I think I read it over two days or something. You just sit down. It's very Moorish and you keep turning the pages, uh, which is definitely one of Naomi Novik's skills. I assume that the point about her being a powerful wizard and having a powerful mother is not in order to effect change to class-based systems in the real world you also need to have a little bit of privilege to help you along right so like that doesn't seem like a bad point to me yeah yeah but the point is that the reason she is a very powerful wizard who has a very powerful mother but does not herself have privilege is because her mother explicitly rejected it before the series of books starts so so she's been kind of she's kind of been set up as an outsider star you know yeah i mean i i haven't read the second book yet yes but i mean there's there's kind of magical power and there's kind of you know there's sort of two aspects to it there's raw magical power and yeah, the other the structural power of how the kind of wizarding society is is structured and she has the former but absolutely does not have the latter um, and it's how she kind of teams with people who have the latter, essentially. I mean, it does feel in in some ways like a bit of a riposte to, to Harry Potter where, you know, magical society is completely broken and no one seems to be bothered by this. It's very clearly a reaction to Harry Potter. I quite like the way in the first book and it sounds like in the second book that it is kind of challenging some of the underlying class assumptions that are in the Harry Potter books. Um, so that's good. And which don't get challenged, despite the fact that you think that the Harry Potter novels are setting them up for challenge. It turns out that it was much 
easier and better for Rowling in terms of her success to just kind of perpetrate them, perpetuate um, perpetuate them. Yeah. So, so this is good in that way. That was the Octothought podcast, and it's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me, and it's goodbye from me. I will find a photograph of me to put in the show notes, which demonstrates how sweaty I get when I dance. And the answer is very. So like I was at a wedding disco and like, I'm just so sweaty. I don't know if you can tell how sweaty I am from the photo, but it's a great photo. So it's going in the show notes anyway. As long as it's a great photo, it can go in the show notes, I think. (laughs) Okay, that photo can. Oh, God, that photo could go in the show notes. That's quite a funny photo. Anyway, I think a lot of this should probably go because we're talking nonsense and we're still on the letters of comment. Um, Did you miss us, listeners? Are you happy we're back? We're talking nonsense and we're still in the letters of comments. I've really missed you guys. That's not even your wedding, is it, John? No, that is uh, my friend Chris's wedding. Uh, there is a photo of me at a different wedding in which I am sweatier, which is this way. Do you just always tie your tie around your head if you get a bit sweaty? Obviously. What else is it there for? spilling ketchup on oh god that's quite intense that is that is very intense i look like i've just been working out in the gym in that last one that's a proper proper sweaty mess you look like you're about to hack a hole in a door with an axe and stick your head through it john i was gonna say, I was gonna say you look like you should be carrying a big sword with murderous intent in that one Actually, you guys might be able to see... Can you see these pictures, like, directly on my Facebook? If I just post this link in, can you just go through... Because there's, like, a bunch of them from the... Just got, like, a... You just have, like, an album of John being sweaty. So it's a very niche Facebook album. Are you, like, sending, you know, paid access links to it? Oh, these are all gold. <laughs> I know, right? But I go hard at weddings, Liz. I when I'm dancing, I'm moving. I am moving about, and I am sweaty. Good God, there is like not a single photo of you. Where you... I'm a dynamic man with dynamic. Even moves. the one where it's just literally your head over someone else's shoulder. Yeah. Oh, and now you're on a convention panel, and you look you look more sober. I've clicked too far. <laughs> boo, boo. Oh, there's one of you as a. There's one of you as the pub boar. Oh yeah, no, that is fair. I look like I look like the old boy that you'd find in the members area at a cricket ground in that photo. Uh, <laughs> anyway, um, we were doing a podcast. I think there's quite a long digression about sweaty John. <laughs> I mean, yep. That can mostly go. <laughs> Staying in. It's not all gold, John. You know, you notice. I don't know if you've noticed, but in the show notes, I've updated the name of the episode to "Embrace the Sweat." <laughs> so um, you may be you may be slightly misinterpreting where my editorial vision is going on this one, which is full sweaty. The theme music for this episode was "Fanfare for Space" by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, used under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. This podcast will end at the beep. Beep.